Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today we're asking, were T-Rexes smart? Were they bloodthirsty carnivores or just hungry for knowledge? Could they be both? We're going to find out how the brains of extinct dinosaurs can help us understand what it means to be smart. Our listener Penny sent us this question. Hi, my name is Penny Jones and I'm seven years old. My question is, how did smartness begin? How did smartness begin? Like, like when could we call something smart? It's a tricky question. I'm going to guess sometime after rocks. <laughs> Penny has an idea of how scientists would find out. I also think scientists... We'll find out how smartness began by studying the time of the dinosaurs because dinosaurs were quite smart. That's an interesting idea, but why does Penny think dinosaurs were smart? I feel like the stereotype is that they're big dum-dums, except for velociraptors. Why did velociraptors get all the credit for the brain? You gotta be smart to hunt a, uh... What did they hunt? I have no idea. (laughs) So, no real reason you can think of of why... Velociraptors were smart. But it makes me wonder why we think of some animals as smart, like a wise owl or a wily fox. What makes an animal smart? And, you know, what makes us humans smart? Are we even smart? (laughs) (laughs) Let's ask our listeners, what do you think smartness is? And are dinosaurs smart? How do you think scientists would find out? Think about it, because we'll be back with a scientist who studied brains and smartness in all kinds of animals, including Tyrannosaurus rex. Susana Herculano Hosel is a Brazilian-born neuroscientist, and she knows that most people don't think that T-Rex was very smart. Everybody has this image of the improbably gigantic creature with these person-sized teeth. And everybody loves to debate whether they were just dumb reptiles. I mean, T-Rex is definitely a frequent topic of conversation in our house, especially among the younger members, like me. (laughs) The household consensus is that T-Rex is very cool, no matter how smart they were. I mean, person-sized teeth, those are cool. But Susanna's a neuroscientist, which means she wants to go further beyond the teeth, all the way up to the brains. And while T-Rex is impressive in size, its brain is not. I'll concede it's true that uh, when you look at the skull, in that gigantic skull, the brain looks like an afterthought. It's like a pear sitting in the trunk of a car, really. It's, it's, it, it looks pathetic. It looks meaningless. Like a pear sitting in the trunk of a car? <laughs> that would rattle around a lot. Well, that's hilarious. So why was Susanna interested in studying T-Rex brains? It's not like they're going to bring them back from extinction right? (laughs) I hope not. But Susanna had an idea similar to Penny's. Looking at dinosaurs might be a good way to learn about smartness. She wanted to question ideas about how smart different animals are. And to understand that, Susanna says we have to answer this question. 
first, what is this smartness thing that we're talking about? Yeah, like, I mean, I guess smartness can mean a lot of things. Susanna agrees. I don't think intelligence is what we measure with exams at school. So I had to come up with a working definition of intelligence, of smartness. Susanna's working definition wasn't something she could just go and look up in the dictionary. And a working definition to a scientist is something that you can test. So she needed a definition that she could do experiments to see if it was correct or not. Exactly. She wanted to define smartness so she could compare intelligence across species. The definition needed to work for animals, not just humans. So the the definition that I came up with is that intelligence is flexibility. It's behavioral flexibility. Behavioral flexibility? What, What does that mean? What that means is you're intelligent if you're capable of acting in different ways, in different circumstances, in different situations, after you've tried something and it worked or it didn't work. Can you change your behavior? Can you do things differently? Okay, so she's saying that intelligence is about being able to adapt your behavior to what you've learned. Yes, and Susanna looked to what's inside the brain to test her ideas about smartness. Neurons are the cells that form brains and that move signals along different parts of the brain and actually across different parts of the body, too. Because neurons are what's responsible for our ability to think, Susanna thought that how many neurons a brain has might determine how smart an animal is. Then it follows that the more of these units that you have, then the more capabilities you have of doing things with those signals. So the more neurons you have, the more things you can do with them, like build houses, cook meals, or circle toys in a catalog that you really hope you'll get for your birthday. Exactly. So Susanna's next step was to find a way to count neurons in different types of brains. So maybe this sounds gross, maybe this actually sounds really cool, but uh, however that sounds, the truth is, I count neurons by turning brains into soup. (laughs) She turns the brains into soup? Like, is it good soup? (laughs) Does she season it with celery? (laughs) So are you coming down on the gross or cool side of the brain soup dilemma? (laughs) Um, I need to know more. (laughs) All right, let's be clear that brain soup is not for eating. It's for science. It's science soup. And here's the recipe. Take your brain of interest, cut out the part that you want to study, cut it up, dice it. You're going to turn it into mush with detergent, turn it into a soup. Sounds like detergent would really like cut out the eating element of the soup. (laughs) Yeah, I don't like eating soap and other non-food ingredients (laughs) with my soup. (laughs) Pretty much ruins things. It's like, man, this is some great brain soup, except for uh, the detergent part. Maybe cut that out. Just tastes like soap. Replace it with carrots. (laughs) So anyhow, after the brain soup is blended up, it's ready to study. Yum. Then collect some of your soup and go to the microscope. Count how many cells you have. 
It's basically just counting the little noodles in your bowl of chicken noodle soup. <laughs> yes. Make that a microscopic bowl of brain soup. So, <laughs> so after Susanna counts the cells, she does some math to multiply the number of neurons found in different parts of the brain. And doing that, she discovered something really important, which is that a bigger brain doesn't necessarily mean more neurons neurons or maybe the only cell in the body that exists in different sizes. We have tiny little neurons and we also have gigantic neurons inside the brain. Wow, so neurons are the only cells that come in different sizes? Yeah, which means that you can pack more neurons into a smaller brain if the neurons are smaller. And to see how that's true, you only have to take the fact that elephants have much bigger brains than us. We study elephants and, and not the other way around. So yeah, it would be weird if elephants were trying to sign us up in their research study. <laughs> right, and that's because it's not one size fits all when it comes to brains. Susanna found that each type of animal has a different equation behind their number of neurons. Once you realize that a primate brain is made in a completely different way from, in terms of numbers, from a cat brain or a dog brain, then you really cannot compare one to the other. So it's kind of like trying to compare apples to oranges. It just doesn't work unless you're trying to decide which is the better fruit. <laughs> you know, I've done that and it is very hard. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> So Susanna had to blend a lot of brains to get a good understanding of the animal kingdom. And she made a lot of interesting discoveries about living animals along the way. But you might be wondering, how does this all work with the T-Rex? I'd gotten so into the brain soup part that I'd kind of forgotten all about the T-Rex. But now that you mention it, I am wondering, what does this have to do with the T-Rex? Can you make T-Rex brain soup? We'll find out after this short break. Okay, we're back. When we left off, Susanna had blended a bunch of brains to figure out how many neurons are in the brains of each type of animal. But what does she do when the brain she wants to know about doesn't exist anymore? So this is where science really turns into detective work. When we try to understand the forms of life that existed before us. Susanna had to find a different way to crack the case of the T-Rex smarts. Yeah, if this is a detective story, where's the evidence? Because it really doesn't seem like brains could fossilize. That's exactly right. There are no T-Rex brains just lying around. Instead of turning into stone that is preserved over millions of years like bones are, their brains just dissolve away. So Susanna turned to the next best thing, the dinosaurs that are still alive. One really interesting thing about dinosaurs that uh, not everybody realizes is that there are still some living dinosaurs amongst us. And that's the birds, right? Fortunately, Susanna had a list of neuron estimates for all different birds. So she's looking at bird brains. Which, come to think of it, bird brain is sort of an insult for being not smart. So how's that going to go? <laughs> you might be surprised. Actually, the non-flying birds 
they are the the ones that are the closest cousins to dinosaurs like T-Rex. And that was exactly my starting point. So Susanna had a different kind of evidence than brain soup. She had her neuron estimates for living birds, and she had an estimate for the size of a T-Rex brain. So what can she do with that? She can make some assumptions and then do some math. I could just presume that, well, if they have the brain size that you would expect for their bodies, if they also had the, their brains made in the same way that other birds, the remaining dinosaurs, are still made to this day, then if I know how large their brain was, I can actually calculate very quickly with very simple math how many neurons that brain must have had. Okay, so what did she find? She found something that kind of frightened her. Even though I'm never going to have a real dinosaur brain to study, there's very good reason to believe that with a brain that big and, and it being a close cousin to living birds, then it probably had something in the order of two to three billion neurons, which makes T-Rex horribly, horribly scary. Those two to three billion neurons are in the cerebral cortex, the part of the brain that scientists believe plays the biggest role in thinking. So is like two to three billion neurons a lot of neurons? It seems like a lot. When you're a fearsome giant carnivore, it is. So let me put this into context. The vast majority of animals have fewer than one billion neurons. That's one with nine zeros. Very few animals have two or more billion neurons. Wow, so T-Rex could be on like an elite level of intelligence, like doing math with its tiny little arms. <laughs> Why do you need arms to do math, though? How are you going to hold a chalk? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just say that for the animal kingdom, T-Rex was uh, pretty smart. The most neurons you find in a, in a living bird is in a macaw with about two to three billion neurons, which is exactly how many I could estimate that uh, T-Rex would have had, two to three billion neurons. Some people say macaws are about as smart as a human toddler. <laughs> okay, I'm starting to get the scary thing because I can only imagine the mind of a toddler in a giant carnivore <laughs> that could knock over a building. <laughs> yeah. So you really have to get their meals into the right color bowl or the consequences are going to be very, very harsh. <laughs> <laughs> but Susanna realized that T-Rexes would have something else in common with macaws. They're the ones that are pretty crafty. They're flexible, so they're smart, intelligent, in that way that I like to define it. So basically, T-Rexes are going to be eating us for dinner if they want, or, you know, whatever they wanted to eat at the time when they were alive, like a Triceratops or something. They really had their pick of snacks. <laughs> <laughs> Anything they could catch. Well, so Penny, who asked our original question, thought that looking back to the time of the dinosaurs would help us find when smartness started. So does it? Well, Susanna wanted to study T-Rexes to get a new perspective on how ancient animals may have lived. And there was another good reason to study them. Come on, how could I not? 
totally understandable. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe T-Rexes were smarter than we give them credit for, but Susanna says that dinosaurs definitely weren't the first smart creatures on Earth. So to come back to her question, when did smartness appear? We can say that capability of doing things differently, of being flexible, that capability has been there for a long, long, long time. And it's a capability that we find in every single bony creature. So anything with a bone in its body probably has some level of intelligence. Right, by Susanna's definition. The first bony animals were also pretty small creatures, and they increased over time, and they also gained neurons over time. So you don't need to have a big brain or lots of neurons to be considered smart. Yeah, we all make the best of what we've got to work with. (laughs) Certainly I try. (laughs) And T-Rexes probably would have kept on doing pretty well if that meddling asteroid hadn't shown up. Which you can learn all about in our episode, The Dinosaur Asteroid. But even though Susanna's made a pretty convincing case for how smart T-Rexes were, is it ever really possible to know the truth? Susanna says there's only one way to know for sure. Well, we would love to have a time machine, of course, right? That would be the only way to really settle any of these questions. I guess those questions and, like, a lot other questions. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that's Susanna's way of saying it's impossible to know for sure. But science is a tool we have to get as close as we can to knowing and to keep questioning what we think we know. I think science is made of these assumptions, things that we believe are true, and then somebody gets curious and goes there and asks, do we really understand this? Do we really know how this works? So we never have to stop asking questions, even if it seems like someone has the answer now. Yes, and as long as, like Susanna, you do the work of getting good evidence however you can. That's the nature of science. It's great. It's actually very comforting and refreshing in a way to realize that everybody can ask these questions and everybody can challenge an idea and have this very healthy custom of just hearing something the first time stated as a fact and going, hmm, I wonder if we really, really know that. You know, I think that's a pretty good thing to do whenever somebody tells you that they know something. It's a pretty smart thing to do, after all. (laughs) Ah. So you've learned that Susanna defines smartness as being flexible in your behavior. Think of how you're smart in this way, and then think about animals. Observe the animals you see in your own life, in your home or around your house. What kind of decisions are they making, and... How could they be smart about them? Maybe it's your dog figuring out how to get you to take it for a walk, or a bird hanging around where they know humans leave their food. Try drawing a picture of the smart behaviors you see and send it to us at tumblepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to see what you find. Thanks to Dr. Susanna Herculano Hosel, Associate Professor at Vanderbilt University. Also, thanks to our listener Penny and Ian for sending in their questions about smartness. 
You can hear more about Susanna's research on brains in our bonus interview episode on Patreon. Just support our show at the $1 level or higher at patreon.com slash tumblepodcasts. And we'll have more free resources to learn about neuroscience available on the blog on our website, sciencepodcastforkids.com. Sarah Robertson Lentz edited this show and designed the episode art. Elliot Hijaj is our production assistant, and Gary Calhoun James engineered and mixed this episode. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote this episode. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I made all the music and sound design for this episode. Tumble is a production of Tumble Media. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more stories of science discovery. Thanks so much for listening to that episode, and now that it's over, we've got birthday shoutouts to give to our supporters on Patreon. Happy birthday to Zane on April 30th. Continue to keep asking questions and being curious. Eliza P., happy birthday on May 2nd. Nisha, your family is so proud of you and love that you love science. Mommy, Daddy, and Adding Rajita love you, and happy birthday on May 2nd. Laya Windesai, keep exploring. Maybe this year you'll find a baby dinosaur fairy under a mushroom. Happy birthday on May 5th. Felix, your parents love you and are so proud of your boundless curiosity, and happy birthday on May 6th. Paige, mom and dad love you, and happy birthday on May 7th. Eamon, happy birthday, also on May 7th. Wyatt, a happy May 7th birthday to you, awesome dude. Mom, Dad, Jackson, and Lala love you. Daphne, happy birthday on May 9th. Never stop exploring and learning. Henry, here's another happy birthday from the folks at your podcast. Have a good one on May 9th. Harper, happy birthday on May 9th as well. May you always look for the unknown. And happy birthday on May 9th to Joaquin. Mom, Dad, and Lola love you very much. Layla Rose, Daddy and Jamila love you and hope you keep exploring, and happy birthday on May 11th. Thanks to all of you and to everyone who supports Tumble on Patreon. If you want to get a birthday shout-out of your own like these fine folks, simply support Tumble on Patreon at the $5 level or higher by going to patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. Once again, that's patreon.com slash tumblepodcast.